How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to continue my conversation with Walter Russell Mead, a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute, professor of foreign affairs and humanities at Bard College, and the author of The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. Thank you very much for agreeing to join us, Professor Mead. It's great to be back. So let's talk about when Jews came to America, which you cover extensively in your book, When did the first Jews arrive in the American colonies, and how many Jews were there in the American colonies at the time of the Revolutionary War? Yeah, Jews actually come to America pretty early. We may not know all the, uh, you know, not everybody uh, listed their religion, uh, and there was no paperwork when people came. But we know that a group of Jews, uh, when the Dutch colonial possessions in Brazil were retaken by the Portuguese, ended up in what's now New York. Peter Stuyvesant, the governor of New York at the time, tried to kick them out. Basically, uh, they appealed to the directors of the Dutch company, and the directors, at least one of whom was Jewish, wrote back to Stuyvesant essentially saying, the purpose of this colony is to make money for the shareholders, and without inhabitants, the, the colony can't possibly achieve this goal. You will therefore stop interfering with law-abiding residents and let these people go about their business. And that generally was the attitude toward Jewish immigration in the 13 colonies up until the revolution, that there weren't a lot of settlers, we needed more, and Jews were, you know, fine, come on in. There are only about a thousand Jews in the 13 colonies at the time of the revolution, and they were unevenly distributed. New York, Newport, and interestingly, Charleston, South Carolina, were places that had pretty significant Jewish populations, some also in Philadelphia. And of the thousand Jews or so who were in the colonies at the time of the Revolutionary War, were they virtually all Sephardic Jews? Uh, They were mostly Sephardic. There would have been probably some Ashkenazi, but they were largely Sephardic, many, again, refugees from Spanish and Portuguese colonies. What was the well-known letter that George Washington wrote to the synagogue in Rhode Island that still is getting a lot of attention these days? Yeah, this, in some ways, this is almost the Magna Carta of the Jewish presence in the United States, where after the revolution, George Washington is sort of traveling through New England, visiting different states now in the Union. And he gets a letter from the rather nervous elders of the Jewish synagogue near Newport, Truro Synagogue. And they're asking him, so what's the deal now? We're kind of hoping that now that we have this new government, 
and we notice there's no religious test for office in the government and so on, we'll be on an equal footing with others. And Washington writes, you're absolutely right. We're not going to speak anymore of toleration in this country as if some people are only here on the sufferance of others. But any American citizen who obeys the laws of the land is equally entitled to a presence and to participation in our civic life. And that idea has, I think, remained the, you know, obviously we've had anti-Semitism in American history. We still have it. But when it comes right down to how does the American state and how does American society as a whole look on the presence of Jews in the United States, it's this. They're just like other people. They have as much right to be here as anybody and as much right to live and worship God as their consciences dictate or not worship God at all as anybody else. That letter is still uh, extant. Is that right? That's correct. So um, when Jews uh, were trying to immigrate to the United States, could they do so freely? Were there any constraints in the colonial days? And when they did come here, did they have any rights? Could they be citizens? Could they vote? Or what were the limitations on Jews? Well, it changes over time and from place to place. There was no Ellis Island in those days. People just got off boats and here they were. You know, there was no bureaucrats waiting at the loading docks. Could they vote? In some places, yes, and even serve on juries. And I believe in Charleston, South Carolina, they were serving on juries. I see. And could they be citizens? Again, it depended on local conditions because there was no general citizenship and colonial status change from time to time. Places like Rhode Island, where the idea of religious liberty, you know, was sort of basic to Roger Williams' original founding ideas of the colony. And in Pennsylvania, because of Penn, had more. But in in the New England colonies, you had established religions uh, that limited, in some case, citizenship and voting to church members. So there was a whole range of conditions. How many Jews were in the United States around the time of the Civil War? And were they on both sides of the war? And how were Jews treated in America around the time of the Civil War? Did they have many rights or were they shunted aside a bit? Well, uh, by the Civil War, you had a a significant American Jewish population by that time, largely because you had a large Ashkenazi immigration of Jews from Germany following both the failure of the Revolution of 1848 and economic hard times, and a number of people who didn't want to be subjected to the Prussian military draft. So you had a significant presence of Jews coming in. Mostly, most of these new residents came to the north because the southern economy was was less attractive. But there were Jews in the south. And actually, Jews in the south often reached higher political positions. I think there were two American Jews who reached the Senate from southern states before the Civil War. And one of them, Judah Benjamin, went on to be the Secretary of State of the Confederacy. During the Civil War, anti-Semitism was rising, partly because you'd had a ri- an increase in Jewish immigration, and that tended to provoke anti-Semitism as people just suddenly saw more Jews. The acceptance was not immediate. But it was also there was suspicion both in the North and the South that the Jews of that region were secretly supporting the other region. 
So in the North, people thought that Jewish financiers were secretly supporting the South, while in the South, people thought that people like Judah Benjamin were undermining the Southern cause because they secretly loved the North. So there was suspicion on both sides. Long after the war, there was an attack on saying that, well, you know, there just weren't that many Jews in combat regiments, at which point Jewish veterans of the Northern armies formed a Jewish Veterans Association and documented the presence of Jews in frontline fighting during the Civil War. So after the Civil War in the late 1800s, more and more migration to the United States occurred of people who were Jewish. And uh, also that continued in the early 1900s. Did the Jews in the late 1800s and early 1900s have more problems getting into the United States? And were they treated better or worse than they had been treated in the early days of the United States? Up until the restrictive immigration laws of the 1920s, there were no legal obstacles to Jewish immigration to the U.S. And even at that time, there was nothing in the American, in American law specifically about Jews. So there were laws against Japanese immigrants or against Chinese immigrants. There were no laws against Jewish immigrants. The restrictive immigration legislation of 23-24, that era, was based on geography. So Jews from countries that had not had many citizens in the U.S. in the 1890 census had very small quotas. This benefited German Jews because Germany had a very large immigration quota. And German Jews actually had an easier time getting into the U.S. in the 30s than Polish Jews, for example, who had a much lower quota. But there was nothing there specifically about Jews. Now, individuals in the State Department and consular officials on visas and so on often did personally discriminate against Jews based on their personal anti-Semitism or feelings about Jews. And so there were often bureaucratic obstacles that weren't in the law. But until 1923, 1924, There were no formal restrictions on Jewish immigration. And some of the restrictive laws, like requiring a literacy test for entry into the U.S., actually ended up, to a certain extent, would have benefited Jews, and that Jews had a higher literacy rate than other groups of immigrants coming into the U.S. at the time. So the legislation that uh, imposed these quotas was passed in 1924, and it became the law of the land until 1965. And during that period of time, bureaucrats had a fair amount of influence. So during World War II, when Jews wanted to come to escape the Holocaust, they were not easily able to get into the United States. Is that a fair statement? Well, look, I think during the actual Holocaust, there weren't that many Jews in a position to to get into the United States. You know, you're in a you're in Auschwitz. Your your problem is not US immigration barriers, but under the Hitler period, You know, as the Third Reich began progressively to make conditions worse for Jews in Europe. But the the Holocaust, per se, doesn't really begin until the U.S. and Germany are on the brink of war. You know, the actual mass murders. But yes, the U.S. was closed to immigration, period. but, But Jewish immigration as much as any during this period. And it's partly... I'm not trying to to defend it because I, I, I wish devoutly 
that we had given more refuge to more people. But to try to understand the politics of the era, you have the Depression, where unemployment is reaching levels like 25%, and wages are very low. And the idea of, you know, very few voters at the time would have thought, oh, I know what America needs. We need more desperate paupers coming in to compete for what's already an insufficient supply of jobs. There were politicians who, like um, Senator Robert Wagner from New York and Fiorello LaGuardia, who, who saw the horror of what was happening and tried to, to press for immigration reform. But the countervailing political forces were just so strong that it was not possible. So following World War II, Jewish uh, immigrants in the United States were um, people who rose up in society and became very prominent in a number of areas. I think people would agree with that. But did you think that Jews had a higher ability or an easier ability to rise up in society in the United States or rise up in Europe? And was there a big difference between the way Jews were treated post-World War II in Europe compared to the United States? Actually, I mean, in many ways, even in the 20s and 30s, you saw Jews playing prominent roles in European politics. You know, until the, the collapse of the Weimar Republic, you had Jews at high levels in Germany. You had Leon Blum, who was prime minister of France at the time of the Popular Front. So in some ways, the U.S. was a laggard before World War II. After World War II, the, the big fact about Jewish populations in Europe is they, they were not large. There were not, tragically, not many Jews in Germany, not many Jews in France. Uh, the Jews who, were, who remained tended to, you know, the, the, the revulsion of popular feeling um, after the Holocaust was great enough to create open space. And in the United States, Jews, you know, there was a general diminishing of racial prejudice, cultural prejudice of all kind in the U.S. You know, we had these sort of 30 years of tremendous prosperity after World War II. And you saw not only Jews, but Catholics, sort of other descendants of the, the great wave of immigrants who came between 1880 and 1924 you know, the, the sort of third generation of those immigrants really found its place in American society. And, you know, Irish who in the past would not have been accepted in Wall Street, white shoe law firms, you know, were doing better. Jews also. But, you know, the last 50 years for Jews in the United States, I think we can really call it one of the real success stories in the history of the Jewish people. And certainly one of the, you know, a, in my view, a very positive thing in the United States. Let's talk about the creation of Israel following World War II. Following that war, when did the idea of a Jewish homeland arise again? And who were the most uh, prominent proponents? Were the Europeans or Americans uh, supporting most prominently the idea of an Israel? Well, the, you know, the, the idea of a Jewish state was very, very popular uh, following uh, World War II. Um, the Jews had been the greatest victims of fascism. There was a global hatred of fascism. It was just seen that the Jews certainly, after having, after what had happened across Europe, if anybody needed a state of their own, it was the Jews. 
and the United States, where popular support for a Jewish state had always been, you know, strong, um, it became even stronger after after 1945. But if we actually look at the a chain of events that led to the creation of the state of Israel, uh, it's pretty clear Britain opposed it every step of the way. The Soviet Union was probably the most important force in promoting the emergence of an independent Jewish state. And the U.S. role in promoting Israeli independence and Harry Truman's role in particular has, I think, been largely overestimated by most of the historians that look at it. Truman later was at a banquet and somebody said, you're like Cyrus. He says, I'm not like Cyrus. I am Cyrus. Uh, I think in some ways, uh, Stalin might have had a better better claim to that title because in 1940, late 1947, as the fighting broke out following the, the ratification by the General Assembly of the resolution calling for the partition of British Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state, fighting began to break out as the Arabs rejected this. And the United States imposed an arms embargo on the whole region, which cut the Israelis, the Jews, as they still were called, the, the Jews of Palestine, off from any weapons, just as war was picking up, without affecting the Arabs who were being armed and trained by the British. Stalin arranged to allow the sale of surplus weapons from the Skoda arms factory in Czechoslovakia, which was increasingly a, becoming a, a Soviet puppet state at this time partly in order to get the hard currency to finance the conversion of Czechoslovakia into a communist state. He permitted these sales and the weapons that, that were then originally smuggled into Israel and then after the Declaration of Independence shipped more openly had originally been made for the Nazi Wehrmacht by the Skoda arms sales and were allowed into Palestine by Stalin. So it's a very complex diplomatic dance but both in international politics at the UN and in the uh, War of Independence, it was the support from the Soviet Union that really enabled Israel to make the moves that it did. So Jews in the United States who supported the concept of an Israel, did they think they were going to go there or they just wanted other people to go there? I mean, you know, a small number of American Jews, some of them quite prominent, like Golda Meir, have gone to Palestine over the years. Judah Magnus played a very significant role in Israeli history. But on the whole, American Jews have tended not to be Zionists in the sense that I can only live my life as a Jew in a Jewish state, or that Jews can never be safe except in a Jewish state. That has not really been the way the American Jewish community has seen itself or its relationship to Israel. So the United States government, by and large, was not in favor of the creation of a state of Israel. Uh, the Secretary of State, George Marshall, uh, opposed it and actually threatened to resign if Harry Truman recognized Israel. Um, what ultimately led Harry Truman to say, I'm going to recognize Israel? And actually, he did so right after uh, Israel was created. Right. No, that's, it's a great story, and it's one I actually spend a lot of time trying to examine in the books. 
there's sort of a kind of a, a, a legend that's very popular both in the American Jewish community and among sort of anti-Semites or believers in the Israel lobby, which are not necessarily the same two groups of people, you know, that in the spring of 1948, Harry Truman is trying to decide what America's policy toward Israel is going to be. And the great controversy rages, and he refuses to meet with any American Zionist leaders, even though Chaim Weizmann, the great leader of Zionism, has landed in New York, has come to America to see him. Truman is refusing to see him. But fortunately, Eddie Jacobson, Truman's childhood friend, you know, early business partner, comes to the White House, insists on seeing Truman, I say, like Queen Esther in the Bible. He goes to the moody Gentile ruler and says, see Weizmann, save my people. Truman sees Weizmann, Israel is saved. That's kind of a, you know, to people who don't like Truman's policy, this was seen as a sign of how incessant Jewish lobbying forced him to ignore the wisdom of George Marshall and Kennan and these other people. But to uh, the American Jewish community, this has been a kind of story of, boy, how we did it, you know, the, and the smallest Jew in the smallest town can play this great dramatic role in the life of the Jewish people. I think that may well be true, but in this particular case, that's not what happened. Jacobson's visit with Truman did not change American policy. And right up until the moment when Israel declared independence, the United States government was doing its best to persuade the Israelis not to declare independence, but to delay it so that the United States could arrange for a new UN trusteeship to replace the British mandate and then try to negotiate some kind of acceptable compromise solution. So the last thing that the Israelis did before they declared independence was they voted to reject the Truman administration's plea to delay. Now, however, once they had declared independence, Truman, following Clark Clifford's very sage advice on this, recognized them immediately beating out the Soviet Union. Well, why did he do this? In American politics at the time, liberal Democrats, led by people like Eleanor Roosevelt and Henry Wallace, believed that what American foreign policy should do was to stay away from an alliance with evil colonial powers like Britain and France and not play great power games, but to win Stalin's trust and work through the United Nations for a progressive foreign policy. And Truman was worried about getting renominated in the Democratic Party. And in fact, Eleanor Roosevelt's two sons are leading or, or associated with a dump Truman move in the Democratic Party, they want to endorse Eisenhower as the next Democratic nominee. So Truman needed to align his policy with the United Nations resolution calling for an independent Israel. But at the same time, he was still worried, in part because the Americans didn't know that the Soviets were supplying arms to the Israelis. The fear in Washington when Israel declared independence was that the Jews would lose the war. That's what Marshall thought. Marshall thought the Jews would lose the war. Remember, where the Cold War is heating up in Europe. Truman calls to institute the draft in the spring of 1948. That was right around the time he saw Weizmann. 
And there's no, the United States does not have a military option to help the Jews in Palestine if they lose the war. And so the idea that there would be a humanitarian catastrophe, Jews on the beaches of Palestine, with the U.S. unable to intervene, is haunting people. But Truman, I think, correctly assessed that recognizing Israel was the the right move. And luckily for him, the Soviet arms allowed the Israelis to win the war. So your view is that Harry Truman deserves credit, but not for the same reason that he often is given the credit. And I would actually say that Eleanor Roosevelt was probably the most consistent pro-Israel voice in American politics at that time. If, If anybody in late 1940s America should be kind of hailed as a hero in Israel, it is probably Eleanor Roosevelt more than Harry Truman. So many U.S. presidents subsequent to Harry Truman have thought that they might be able to broker a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And my former boss in the White House, Jimmy Carter, tried that for quite some time, made some progress. Other presidents have tried the same, Bill Clinton as an example. Why do you think American presidents think that they can resolve this centuries-old, millennium-old dispute and that they have the ability to kind of bring peace to the Middle East? You know, it's the kind of thing, the peace process works really well for an American president, at least back in the sort of Clinton era, which was kind of the peak of the peace process era, where, first of all, it's clear that America is the only country that Israel will listen to in terms of making concessions to the Palestinians. So if you care about the Palestinians, you need to come to the United States. Um, And that works for Israel because they feel the United States was more trustworthy than other countries on the topic. Meanwhile, as president, everybody in America loves the idea of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. No one is unhappy with a president who is trying to negotiate for Israel. And so as a president, you can you can say something sympathetic to the Palestinian situation and the left wing goes, oh, at last he's doing something. And this is so wonderful. Gosh, you're a terrific president. Or if you think you need to make the right a little happier, you can say, you know, our commitment to Israel is unbreakable and I will always be there for Israel. And they go, oh, what a wonderful president we have. Neither of these statements cost you anything at all. You know, you didn't have to spend any money. You didn't have to send any troops. You didn't have to raise any taxes. Because people care so much about this issue, presidents use the issue to communicate their general stands in foreign policy and to sort of whip up their support wherever their support happens to come from. Now, in recent years, evangelical Christians have been big supporters of Israel. Is that because of their belief that in the in the Bible it says that the Israelis, uh, the Jews, will go back to Israel and, and recapture Israel? Why are evangelical Christians among the biggest supporters of Israel? Yeah, there, there are many reasons for this. Uh, one thing that I think it's important, particularly to, for Jewish uh, audience to understand, is that it's not because evangelical Christians think that by supporting Israel, they can hasten the day of the second coming of Jesus. In Judaism, there's an idea 
that if you live a good life and do good deeds, you can hasten the arrival of Messiah. And if you do bad deeds and so on, you might delay his return. In Christianity, there's no such idea. It's sort of entirely, it's up to God and you have nothing to do with it. Uh, This is, you know, it'll come when it comes. So it's not this motive that some people sometimes think it'll bring on a religious war and bring on the end of the world. That's not so much it. I think it's partly, yes, it says to people, the Bible is true. You know, the Bible predicted the Jews would return. Here they are. Think about 1944. The Soviet forces break into Poland and start to liberate the extermination camps. And yes, there'd been news accounts of the Holocaust before, witnesses, but seeing things on the newsreel and seeing pictures on the front page of the newspaper, this is very different. And so suddenly you see a world where the whole idea of the Enlightenment, you know, that with the progress of science and technology, human beings would be better and we'd stop fighting each other and we would be moving into a higher, happier world. Well, Germany was the most enlightened, cultivated country of Europe. And look at what happened. Then the next year, 1945, you have the atom bomb. And so this species that we know has not improved morally since the time of the cavemen, right? Now has the power to destroy itself. But then 1948, the state of Israel emerges and against what seemed to be overwhelming odds, they win and the Jews are back with a Jewish state in the Holy Land to millions of American Christians, not just evangelicals. This is sort of in these terrifying times where we don't know what's going to happen. And now the Soviet Union is getting the bomb and we're all living in this nuclear nightmare. God is still in charge of history. And Israel becomes a symbol of hope for all kinds of Americans, regardless of what they think about Jews, regardless of what they think about anything else. And that is part of what is still going with us today. So what has been the reaction to your book thus far? You know, it's been, uh, it's been a really encouraging reaction. I've gotten terrific reviews, the New Republic, the New York Times, the Washington Post. If you look at the people who are blurbing it or some of the quotes I have in, you know, that are on the Amazon page and other places, some very serious intellectuals and scholars from the Arab and Islamic worlds you know, have, have endorsed the book. And yet also some, you know, very well-known Israeli-American historians like Michael Oren and others have endorsed the book. What I hope to do with this book, among other things, was to show that you you can write about a very controversial topic in a way that that opens discussion rather than polarizing people and driving them into, you know, bitter partisan camps. And I, you know, some of the things I say are not welcome to critics, of, you know, the people who believe in the Israel lobby or Jewish conspiracies. I'm very you know, tough on those. But in the same way, I try to give people a voice in the book and try to help people understand maybe you don't agree with what these people did, but this is why they did it. It's what they thought they were doing. And that seems to have 
have worked out pretty well. Finally, let me ask you, what is your next book going to be about? Well, I'm working on a book about why is America in such an upheaval? Why are we so bitter and angry with each other? How could you build a new kind of, of political approach that might actually get us moving forward again as a country? And, I, you know, it's, a, it's a very different from this book, but a lot of the work I did on American political and economic history for this book is really underwriting uh, what I'm doing now. Again, I, I loved this subject because it, among other reasons, it's so, it provides a window into America. We're not going to have to wait 20 years, though, for this book, right? Let's hope not. Now, you know, I saw Henry Kissinger a few days ago. He's 99 and still writing books. I'm hoping to get this one done before I reach the Kissingerian age. Professor Mead, it's been great speaking with you about your new book. Thank you very much for a terrific conversation and your time today. Thank you, David. Much appreciated. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.